Praise the Lord. Thank you, cousins. Brought back memories uh, many years ago. We uh, had a cousin's corral at uh, church I attended. It was all, all our children and aunts and uncle children. And it was a great thing. It looked like we had the beginning of a cousin's canal, a, a corral there this morning. It's good to see you here. We thank you to the Vanderwurst for the music this morning and the Wesco Cousin Corral for the music this morning. We are trusting in the Lord today to lead us in our study as we come to this important subject, the subject of dispensationalism. I want to say to you right off the beginning that the determination of whether you are a dispensationalist or not is not based on the instruction I'm going to give you from the Word of God today. It's based on what your hermeneutics is. You remember last week's message? You remember that big word hermeneutics? Hermeneutics is the science and art of interpreting the Scriptures. And we said there are four basic characteristics in hermeneutics that must be followed as we interpret the Bible. I wonder if you remember any of them. Who would remember the first? Literal, literal, literal good. The second? Pardon? I can't quite hear you. You need to be consistent, but that's not one of these four points, right? Literal, historical, grammatical, cultural, okay? In this order, remember them. Literal, grammatical, historical, cultural. That means we take the Word of God for what it says. It was interesting to me, and I've never checked this out personally, but my teachers in seminary told me this. They said the, the, the only people, the, the one convincing group of people who believe that the Bible should be literally interpreted are the liberals who don't believe in the Bible. In other words, the people that say, I don't believe that any of this is true, say, if it were true, it is understood that it would have been interpreted literally. And so as we open our Bibles this morning, we keep in mind that we are seeking to understand the Word of God from a literal, grammatical, historical, cultural perspective. Now having said that, we want to talk about the dispensations in Scripture as seen through the major covenants of the Bible. And I, I want to emphasize that we have to have the right hermeneutic, but then with that hermeneutic, I want to open the Bible and see what it has to say to us. Just as a working definition of dispensationalism, we would say this. The dispensations are the periods of time following each of the major covenants of the Bible in which men were to live before God in accordance with what God commanded in the covenants. In other words, the covenants, the seven great covenants of the Bible, defined in each segment of time how men were to interact and act with regard to God in, in their lives. I want you to notice in this definition that I've given to you, especially the last word, the last word covenants. I didn't say covenant. I said covenants. Some people have simplified the thinking of dispensationalism to say that every dispensation is, is distinct and separate from every other dispensation. But that's not true completely. Because some, for example, the Edenic Covenant, some of the stipulations, one in particular of the Edenic Covenant, carries all the way through time, all the way through all the rest of the dispensations. And then on the other hand, some of the characteristics, particularly the covenant of law, the law dispensation, you know, God tells us that when the law was over, the law was over, and we entered into the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we look at some of these, uh, it's not just how a person lived based on the covenant that was most recent before his time. It was based on the accumulation of the different things God had instructed over the years. Now having said that, we want to look at an overview of the great covenants of the Bible. People got confused. I really appreciated you taking, uh, having a good spirit last week because they gave you that little quiz and being willing to share with me a little bit about how it came out for you. But I found out one consistent error people made is that they forgot about the Edenic Covenant and they went right into the Adamic Covenant. I guess when you think of the beginning of the Bible, you think of Adam and Eve. Well, think of the Garden of Eden. Uh, the Garden of Eden, actually Adam was created before the Garden of Eden was. And God created man, but he put him into a special place that he had prepared for him into the Garden of Eden. So when you think of the covenants of the Bible, think first of the Garden of Eden, the place where God put Adam. When he put him there, he gave him some instructions. 
And uh, those instructions told him how he was to act and what he was to do, and one thing he was not supposed to do. And so that was the Edenic Covenant. Now we're just doing an overview here. We're going to come back to these in some detail a little later on. So after the Edenic Covenant, which is the, uh, the instructions that God gave to man in the Garden of Eden, there comes the Adamic Covenant in Genesis chapter 3. By the way, you should be able to name all these covenants in order, just like we did the hermeneutic just now, and the chapter of the Bible they're found in. If you're really knowledgeable about your Bible, you should be able to name these covenants and where they're found in the Bible. The Adamic covenant was, in fact, not so much a covenant as it was a curse. It was a curse that God put on mankind because of his sin. Actually, the curse on the creation over which man had dominion because of his sin. And that follows right along in chapter 3, very much near the beginning of the book of Genesis. And then after that, we had the Noahic covenant, Genesis chapter 9. Chapter 9 is the aftermath of the flood and Noah worshiping God, offering a sacrifice at the end of chapter 8 to worship the Lord. And then the Lord gave him a covenant instruction in Genesis chapter 9. And then we have 10, 11, and 12. Remember, 10 and 11 are out of order. 11, the Tower of Babel, actually comes before 10, which is the Table of Nations. And then we come to chapter 12, and uh, right at the end of chapter 11, we have the genealogy that leads us to the man Abraham. And there in uh, Genesis chapter 12, we have the Abrahamic covenant, just three short verses, as God spoke and laid down his instruction for Abraham. Then after that, many years later, I have at the end of your notes an a identification of how many years approximately were in each of these dispensations. Then quite some time later came the Mosaic Covenant in Exodus 20 through 23. Chapter 20 was the apodictic law, as they call it, the absolutes that God established, the Ten Commandments. And then in chapters 21 through 23, we have the case law. And at the end of chapter 23, we have the feasts. And God gave those instructions to Moses as the rule of life that they were to follow in that period of time. That's called the Mosaic Covenant. And then, of course, we come to the New Testament and the New Covenant. On Pentecost, Christ had looked forward to this at his crucifixion just before it as he instituted the Last Supper. And he said, the testament in my blood, remember testament is the same idea as covenant, just a different word for it, he instituted there, and it actually took effect at Pentecost when the church came into being. And we have the new covenant, which then established the church age. And then finally, yet future, is the kingdom covenant. It's amazing how this covenant is neglected. Everybody should know that in Jeremiah chapters 31 and 33, we have the new covenant that is called in Scripture, which God will make with Israel. Now, we have the new covenant, which God offered to the world for the establishment of the church, but now we have the new covenant applied specifically to Israel. And they're very closely related, and yet they're distinct in terms of who they're directed toward. So we have the new kingdom covenant, or new covenant as the Scriptures call, and we'll talk more about that later. I'm always excited when somebody comes to me with a question or observation, and they did on this last time I had talked about this. They said, well, what about, uh, what about the Davidic covenant? I said, oh, you've been listening in Bible Hour, haven't you? Because he's talked about the Davidic covenant, and he's talked about the land covenant. Well, those two covenants are more or less sub-covenants. Some people put them under the Abrahamic covenant. Some people put them under the Mosaic covenant. Actually, the Abrahamic covenant promised a land, a nation, which includes a land, and also promised a kingship uh, by virtue of the fact that it was a nation. There'd be some executive leader. But it was identified as David and his progeny a little bit later on. And so we have these two sub-covenants. We won't be spending any time with those, but we'll focus our time on those seven basic covenants. Now, we had a working definition. I want to take now and just clarify a little bit and give a technical theological definition. Uh, the word translated dispensation twice in Scripture is oikonomos, or oikonomos. And that is a Greek word which is made up of two other words, which are oikohaus and namas, rule or law. So the root definition of a word, and that's not always the meaning of it in usage, but the root definition of this word is very close to its meaning in usage, is the idea of house rule 
or house rulership, house law. Well, what does that mean? Well, I'd like to draw a picture for you of an earthly situation that you could picture in this, in this city. There is a man who is very, very wealthy. And this man wishes to have a home that he can share with others, but he doesn't have the time and he doesn't want to put all the personal attention to it. So this householder hires a steward, a man who will act in his place to carry out the organization and administration of this very large, nice home. They will see that the meals are served, they will see that the beds are made, to see that the people are taken care of, and just be an intermediary between him and his house. And so uh, he becomes an administrator of that house, a steward. So we have in this picture here, we have a, an owner who is the master. Then we have a house, which is what he rules over. And then he delegates that care to a steward. And that's the idea of dispensation. To look at it more clearly, let's just look at the... Uh, word as it's used in different places. It's used as the word, it's translated in the New Testament dispensation twice, and once it's translated stewardship. So it's the idea of a dispensation or a stewardship, a, a assigned responsibility by a master for someone to care for his possessions. Now, as we look at this, we find that, of course, the master, the Lord of the house, is God himself. God himself is the ruler of this house. And in Hebrews chapter 3 verse 4 it says this, for every house is builded by some man, but he that built all things is God. So just as this wealthy person owned this house, God is the creator and thereby owns everything in the world. The world is the house. The Lord is the ruler. Genesis 14:19. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram of the Most High God, possessor of heaven and earth. And so again, God in that verse is the possessor of heaven and earth. Now we look secondly at the house. Well, the house is the world and everything in it. In Psalm 24 verse 1 it says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. The world is and they that dwell therein. Everything on the earth, people, uh, locations, globe, all belong to the Lord. Uh, and, and that is the house. It is the world which he created. And then we have the steward, which is mankind. We're called upon to be stewards. First Peter 4.10 says, As every man hath received the gift, whatever your gifts are, that's associated with where you minister, even so, minister the same one to another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Let a man so account of us as of the ministers of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. More is required in stewardship that a man be found faithful. And so we have our Lord, who is the Master, the house which is all creation, and the stewards that he has appointed over the house, and that's us. And in different periods of time, he's given us different instructions as to how we're to administer the house that he's putting us in charge of. And that's what the covenants are. The covenants are the instructions that God gives for us in, or for the individuals in that time who were living in that time. Uh, but we need to realize that God at times changed living conditions on earth and often man's focus in life, guidelines for living and worship, as that man served God from dispensation to dispensation. Things changed. Life was considerably different from Abraham than it was for the people who lived after Moses. And life is considerably different between people who lived during the law time when they were taking sacrifices and what it's like to live today. God made changes. He made other changes. But we need to realize this. And the opponents of interpreting the Bible literally as we are uh, complain that by having different households you have different systems of, different systems of salvation. That is not true. 
The way of salvation is always the same in every dispensation. The way of salvation is this. It is by grace through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. But wait a minute, that isn't what my slide says, is it? It says by grace through faith. You know, in the age in which we live, rightfully so, we have emphasized the importance of the Lord Jesus Christ. And hopefully every one of your children learned the verse, Acts 4.12, in their upbringing, and perhaps hopefully you too, that says, Neither is there salvation in any other, for there is none other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. That name is so important. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. 100% true. But people in Abraham's day and Moses' day, if you would have said Jesus Christ to them, they wouldn't have had a clue what you're talking about. They did not have the revelation and understanding that has now been made available to us and that God expects us to practice. Well, what was their rule? By men believing or trusting in the revelation God had given to them. That was the means of salvation. Now keep in mind that that revelation included an idea that someday there had to be some kind of an intermediary. As early as Genesis 3.15, God told them there would be a seed of a woman. And in other texts throughout the Old Testament, knew they, there was the idea of a substitution with a sacrifice. The idea of Christ was there. But the name of Christ and the understanding of the cross and Christ and all of that, they had not heard before. The way they were saved, the way they became believers is by trusting and believing the revelation that God had given to them. Now let's take some examples just to understand how that's true. Here is Adam. It says in Genesis 3.21, Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them. Interpreters of the Bible almost unanimously think of this as God's provision of salvation to these people by the shedding of blood and the covering symbolically being the covering of righteousness as God saved them, as God showed their, uh, their acceptability to him. I, I want to show that to you. I think we miss this so often in the Bible. I want you to go with me to Genesis chapter 3, verse 21, and I want you to look at this sequence a little bit more closely. Open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, verses 14 to 19, is the Abrahamic covenant. I'm sorry, the uh, Adamic covenant. Okay, the Adamic covenant. Uh, it's actually not called a covenant in Scripture. It's called, it's just a curse is what it is, but it's, it's like a covenant. And in verse 16 of that curse, God said this, Unto the woman he said, I will greatly multiply thy sorrow and thy conception... In sorrow thou shalt bring forth children, and thy desire shall be to thy husband, and he shall rule over thee. It says here that he's going to multiply her conception. That means he's going to multiply, he's going to make her more fertile. That seems strange to us, doesn't it? Man falls in sin, and God makes, makes the woman more fertile. But God did that, and he also said there was going to be sorrow. Apparently, that was not a part of childbirth prior to that time. That there'd be sorrow and difficulty. But the, these, these statements of God were made there as Adam listened. And then after that, look what he says to Adam. Verse 17. Because thou hast hearkened unto the voice of thy wife and hast eaten of the tree, of which I commanded thee, saying, Thou shalt not eat of it, curses the ground for thy sake. In sorrow, like the woman bearing child, in sorrow shalt thou eat of it all the days of thy life. Not just when your children are born. Thorns also and thistles shall it bring forth to thee. Thou shalt eat the herb of the field. In the sweat of thy face shalt thou eat bread, till thou return into the ground. For out of it wast thou taken, for dust thou art, and to dust shalt thou return. Does that really put you on a spiritual high? If you were Adam? Just think about it. 
Adam was drawn into this by the vehicle of his wife that Satan used. He had fallen into sin. God was putting a curse on creation because of him, and he was going to have to live in the midst of that creation. We're going to find out in a minute how severe that curse was. And Adam might have reacted, I don't believe it. How can this be? Really so bad? When God pronounced that curse on the creation underneath him and made his life so miserable. But he didn't react that way. As the Bible portrays it, and, and the Bible is inspired by God, and so I assume things are, I'd rightfully assume that things are all put together in a very deliberate order. The immediate thing that comes in verse 20 is, and Adam called his wife's name Eve because she was the mother of all living. He was acknowledging in that statement, I accept what you say, God. She's going to bring forth many children. And there is no one else in the world. She's going to be the mother of the race. That was a statement of faith. That was taking the curse that God had just pronounced on creation because of him, taking that curse and, uh, and making it a part of himself and accepting it. And then you notice the next in the sequence of verses. Verse 21. Unto Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skin and clothe them was a picture of the sacrifice, the intercession that was needed for his sin, the killing and shedding the blood of an animal. Remember, Adam hadn't seen that before. And now God took one of his beautiful created animals. I, I wonder maybe if he didn't do it in, in Adam and Eve's view. Slaughtered that animal, cut his throat and bled the blood out of him stripped his skin from him and used it to clothe Adam and Eve. Death was the penalty for their sin. Adam believed. He believed what God said. And so here it says, And to Adam also and to his wife did the Lord God make coats of skins and clothe them. Well, let's look at some others. Let's talk about Job. Job is probably the next person in the progress of people in Revelation that we might think of. He is generally thought to have lived during the time of Abraham. And Job said, you know, Job didn't have any revelation, no, no written scripture, unless except his own. Okay? Here's what he says, Neither have I gone back from the commandments of his lips. I have esteemed the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. He had something, either direct revelation somehow or through uh, something that had been handed down to him, confidence that God had given some instruction. And he says, listen here, I esteem the words of his mouth more than my necessary food. That is a mark of his committed faith in God's word. In other words, he's saying here, just as if I don't eat food, I'll die. If I don't have God's word, I'll die. I put in my faith and trust in God's word. That's how he got saved. That's how he came to know the Lord, as we would put it. Well, what about Abraham? Abraham, in Genesis 15, 6, it says, And Abraham, or he, believed in the Lord, and he counted it to him for righteousness. Now, you know, that verse is nestled into a lot of revelation there in chapter 15, and before and after. Someone might say, well, should we really lift that verse out, out of this context and make it so important? Well, I'll tell you something. Twice it's quoted in the New Testament. And it's quoted for the same reason I'm quoting it. To show that Abraham was saved by his faith. He was saved by believing what the Lord told him. And Abraham believed in the Lord. And he counted it to him for righteousness. Well, jump forward quite a long way to the time of the kings, Isaiah, 740 B.C. And uh, in that time, Isaiah makes the observation in chapter 66, verse 2. But to this man will I look, even to him that is poor and of a contrite spirit and trembleth at my words. Uh, are you maybe discipling somebody who's a new Christian 
and you're trying to see if they understand or get them to understand the gospel because the problem is they've heard it said in such a, such a similar way so many times that you're not sure if it's understanding or mimicry that they're giving you. I mean, you wonder if it's just, you, you bet, I've met, uh, I've been suspicious, I've met people who, who, who have learned the lingo and they know how to say it in such a way that they appear to be saved. Well, go back in the Old Testament and look at some of these statements. That's true for us too. That's true today. Just as, all these are true for us today. It's just that we have more revelation and so we have a clearer understanding so we develop our confession of faith in more detail because we have more detail than they had. But God says, listen, that's what I'm looking for. A humble person. Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, and in due time he will exalt you. A humble person who trembleth at my word, trusts in God's word. Well, take all the Old Testament saints. Hebrews chapter 11. I looked there for a few moments, and that begins with Seth and goes all the way up through the prophets. It covers a dispensation, not of innocence, but a dispensation of conscience, human government, promise, and law. The individuals named in chapter 11 of Hebrews covered those four dispensations. And it says there, and these all, having obtained a good report through faith, received not the promise. See, they had a promise, but they didn't get it. They, they put their faith in it. God having provided some better thing for us, that they without us should not be made perfect. In other words, they were saved way back then through faith, and the many great things they did, which are recorded in Hebrews chapter 11, were because of their faith. But they didn't know what you now know. You know that their faith in what God said ultimately was faith in Jesus Christ. And now we know how it all worked out and how it all developed and how he came and he died on a cross and he was buried and he rose again the third day and he ascended back into heaven. That's Jesus Christ. So that faith which they had, which was, which was real and living and effective, but had incomplete knowledge, we now make perfect, which is the idea of fill out, complete, because we now know who it was and how it all worked out. We have all the details, some of which they did not have. But they, by faith, served God and believed in him. The way of salvation is always the same in every dispensation. By grace, through faith, by men believing or trusting in the revelation God had given to them. Moving on, dispensations in Scripture. An overview of the biblical covenants reveals that although salvation is always by faith through grace, God at times changed living conditions. He actually changed nature on different occasions. We'll talk about that. Uh, at the time of the curse, after the flood, at the end of the church age entering the, the, the millennial kingdom. He changed, actually changed some things in the way the world and nature works. That's what we mean by uh, changed living conditions on earth. And often man's focus in life, the one under the law was focused on the temple, Jerusalem. We're focused on Christ at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And then there are the guidelines for living. Old Testament, they had to bring sacrifices. Today we bring spiritual sacrifices. And worship from dispensation to dispensation. Why, why those differences? Well, we're going to think about that question here for a little bit. And uh, I want you to think and realize this. God chose to reveal himself to mankind through progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. The Reformed don't believe in progressive revelation. They believe somehow God revealed to those Old Testament saints something more specific about Jesus Christ. I, I, I don't know what they're talking about because I don't, it's not in my Bible. My Bible says what I just taught you. But uh, 
we understand as we look at our Bibles that we receive them through progressive revelation. God did not one day say, okay, I'm going to give it all to them and dump the Bible. Excuse me, the word dump isn't appropriate, but dump the Bible and one big whole thing right on them all at once. For one thing, a lot of things that are in the Bible would have been prophecy back then and not history. But man's got a lot of problems. He's blinded spiritually. He's limited intellectually. He's got a lot of problems. And God desperately wanted to communicate with his children, his created children, children in the sense of creation. He wanted a relationship with them. He wanted to share with them who he was. And he said, the only way I'm going to be able to do that is give them a little, I'm going to have to spoon feed them, spoon to time. And so he did that through progressive revelation. Now, one way we see that illustrated is through the different individuals in Scripture. Take Abraham, for example. Abraham had available to him oral communication from history. Things have been passed down about Adam and Eve and all these things. Documents and no doubt direct revelation. God gave him those things to understand and that's what he believed in when he put his trust in God. But compare that to, say, Joshua. Joshua was after the time of Moses, and Moses wrote the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. So Joshua had the Pentateuch as he expressed his faith in God. And then there's David. He had the Pentateuch, Joshua, Judges, Ruth, 1 Samuel, and maybe I may not be exactly right here, but a little bit more, a little bit more. And then we come to Zedekiah. Remember who he was? He was the last reigning king of Judah before the Babylonians came in and destroyed it in 586 B.C. And look what he had. All the way through 1 Kings, Obadiah, Joel, Jonah, Amos, Hosea, Isaiah, Micah, Nahum, Zephaniah, and Habakkuk. He had quite a bit of revelation at his disclosure. Well, now we look at Paul. Paul had the whole Old Testament the whole Old Testament. And as he was ministering, he started seeing letters from his other apostles that were being circulated in the church that would eventually become a part of the New Testament canon. And then he had his own writings, which God revealed to him and which were developed through inspiration uh, and became a part of Scripture. So he had all the Old Testament and a certain amount of the New Testament that was being developed at the time he lived. But even after he died, there was still more to come. What was left? What was left? Revelation, 1st, 2nd, 3rd John. And who would write those? The Apostle John, around 95 A.D. The entire Bible, less his books, he received. And he added his books. So at the end of his life in 95 A.D., the Bible had been completely written, but the canon hadn't been completely put together until a little bit later than that. So the church had what? The church, in fact, had the entire Bible. Now compare that to Job. It's mind-blowing. Compare that to Abraham. Compare that to Moses. Compare that to Paul. Paul didn't know that the kingdom was going to be a thousand years. It wasn't revealed until John wrote in 95 A.D. Before that, he knew there was going to be a kingdom because Isaiah and all the prophets talked about a kingdom, but he didn't know it would be a thousand. He wasn't a premillennialist because he didn't know it was going to be a millennium long until John wrote Revelation chapter 20 and six times said it would be a thousand years. Progress of Revelation. But you see, today, Revelation has progressed to the point where we have the whole Bible. But with that Bible, we have a history of God's interaction with men that developed over the years. And with that history and with the, the way things are in the time in which we live, he has given us the whole Bible that we might be able to understand in these approaching latter days exactly what God is doing. You know, it's such a privilege to live now. It's such a privilege to have the whole Bible. 
It's a responsibility. It's a privilege, but it's a responsibility. Now, I want you to notice this, too, that even within the text, God reveals himself in bite-sized pieces. In other words, you just take the book of the Pentateuch or Genesis. In that book, God doesn't just dump everything out in one chapter. He, he reveals himself over the course of the whole book. And in Genesis in particular, he, he reveals himself through what? His names. His names. We have a song we sing in our songbook called The Names of God. Brother Gigrick is a real blessing to our church and in his ministry here. Uh, he, he wrote, I think you put the words and music together, didn't you, brother? Or was it music? The text is from the scripture, and he did the music to set it to music. We have to sing that sometime soon. Uh, but those names are from the book of Genesis. And each time God gave him a name, it had a different kind of meaning. And by the time you got to the end of Genesis, you had this collection of names who gave you a pretty good idea of who God was. That's progressive revelation. God revealed himself in bite-sized pieces. The names of God revealed sequentially in Genesis. And then we have the progressive nature of dispensations. I, uh, <clears throat> as you're meditating, <laughs> the Word of God never wears out. You know, you think you got your sermon prepared, and you meditate it through it one more time, bang, there's something new you saw you didn't see last time. And so it never ends. I mean, every time you go through it again, you see something different. And uh, that's, that's amazing. It's such a, a deep treasure. And the dispensations, one of those insights that I happened to said, you know, the, the law dispensation based on the Mosaic law code is quite different than the Edenic statements of God to, to Adam. God told Adam, there's just this one thing you're not to do. Compare that to the law. Chapter 20 to 23 of Exodus. Wow. Maybe I should have learned not to ask for everything. Gets more and more complex. Why? Because revelation is progressing. God gives more, he expects more. He gives more and he expects more. You know what we got? Everything! What do you think he expects? Wow. We have the entire Bible. We have all of the dispensations. Have in the sense of have them laid out before us in the Scripture. We made this point before, but it never, never wears out. Look at the screen, please. Look at the screen. Woe unto thee, Chorazin. Woe unto thee, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works which were done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. You can substitute the whole counsel of God, the written Bible, in our hands. Not only available, but in multiple copies available to us digitally or written or, or uh, printed, however you want it. What light we have. What light we have. Are you availing yourself of that light? God dearly wants to show you who he is. God dearly wants to show you how you can spend eternity with him. God dearly wants to show you how to live in a wicked, sinful world and be separated from it. The dispensations were necessary to communicate and work effectively with finite men. He had to introduce things bite-sized, spoon-feed, because that's the only way he could communicate the greatness of our Lord and of his plan for our lives. Another reason for dispensation is this. The similarities and differences seen in the various dispensations together demonstrate the necessity of Christ's sacrifice for the redemption of men. Neither is there any name, other name under heaven given among men 
whereby we must be saved. Believe that? Oh, don't you think maybe social reform? I mean, look, the election's coming up. Get out there and, I mean, you should get out there and vote, by the way. Don't, I'm preaching against voting. Don't get me wrong. But does there a, is there an ultimate solution there? No. No. Uh, if, if we would just do what we think is right and get everybody to do what they think is right, would that be a solution? No. Well, we're going to see when we get a little further along. We're not going to make it today. We're going to see how the dispensations eliminate a lot of these alternatives that people are claiming are their way or their ticket to heaven today. But we'll save that for later. Right now, we want to think about how the dispensations relate to one another. Consider how the similarity and the differences fit together. You might recognize these three guys. And if you... Uh, I've completely reorganized this sermon. I've never given a sermon twice the same way. I'm not possibly capable of doing that, even if I wanted to, but I didn't even try to this time. But I did take this from a previous sermon. If you know anything about these guys and when they were born, you might figure out what year I did it in. But anyway, here's Joel, 10 years, Lawrence, 15 years, and Timothy, 20 years old. Now, I've identified them by their age, but I don't want you to think of it in terms of age. I'm trying to help you conceive the, the, this thought. At a certain age, there's a certain maturity level. And a certain amount of information can be grasped and digested. And other information is just over your head. So you ask different things of different ones because of their maturity and where they are in life. And so we're going to illustrate this as if these were different individuals living in different dispensations. So let's look at this as an example. The 10-year-old, he must not disobey his parents. That's a rule of the house. He must not disobey his parents if he's 15 years old. If he's 20 years old, he's probably not going to disobey his parents then either. But he is responsible to God, at least at 21 as the Old Testament defines that as a significant date. Is that right, dear? What is it? 20? That's why I put it there, 20. Sorry. I was wrong about why I was right. Uh, when, the Bible talks in the Old Testament about a person being accountable at 20 years old, so that's why that's that way. Not that he should disobey his parents, but he should be focusing on God as his own personal guy. The young one must honor and respect his parents, the 15-year-old must honor and respect his parents. And the 20-year-old and the 60 and the 80-year-old must honor and respect his parents. He must not lie, steal, do any such things. Neither should the 15-year-old, neither should the 20-year-old. These are things we teach our children from this high to this high. You don't steal. You don't lie. I tell my children, if you lie about something you did wrong, you're going to get disciplined twice. Because you did it wrong and then you lied about it. Lie is a serious sin. You as a pastor or a counselor or a parent or anything, try to work with an individual and help them get through a crisis in their life where they've done something wrong and they need to turn. If they lie, you'll have a hard time getting anywhere with them. Lying is a serious matter. That's not the sermon today. He may stay up until 8 o'clock if he's a 10-year-old. Oh, a 15-year-old, maybe 9.30. And he varies his bedtime from time to time, although he doesn't disturb his other children who are in bed. That's for sure. Now, don't go home and tell your mom, see what preacher said, I can stay up this late. That's up to mom and dad. That's, this is an illustration, not the law. Okay, he has, ex he has expected chores and he earns some money. <clears throat> he has uh, more expected chores in a college industry. For the life of me, I can't remember what his cottage industry was. He must have had one then. And then it says he is expected to earn income and to support himself. He has some homework rules. He has more homework and responsibility to complete it. He has no more homework. He may or may not, but in this case, he's no longer in school. Timothy went back to school. <laughs> he went back to school, as it turns out. But I didn't know that when I put the slide together back then. And so you see there's differences and there's likenesses. 
There's things that conceptually can be understood by all of them, and there are other things that are based on their maturity. He does not have the privilege of driving a car. He does not have the privilege of driving a car even as a 15-year-old. But as a 20-year-old, he has both the privilege and responsibility of driving a car. He's got more privileges, but he's got more responsibility, not because of his age, but because of his maturity level. We're illustrating through age here. Okay, now let's look at these individuals. Noah, King David, Apostle Paul. Just for a moment, think about these individuals. Now remember, we're not talking about age. We just use that to talk about, uh, about maturity. These are all mature men. But the world of Noah is sure different than King David. Just think about what everyday life was like for Noah. Think about what everyday life was like for David and then for Paul. Quite different. Quite different. But as we examine him, we see that he had the privilege and responsibility to believe what God had said. He had the privilege and responsibility to believe what God had said, but he knew a lot more about what God said than Abraham did or than Noah did. And then we have the Apostle Paul. He had the privilege and responsibility to believe what God had said, and he had the whole Old Testament and even more. As you look at this, and you think of your spiritual life, I mean, who, we, who, we most identify with the Apostle Paul, don't you think? We most identify with the Apostle Paul. But think back, what life was like for Noah. Quite different. When, when Noah prayed to God, he didn't have all this information we have today. But yet, he could have faith and trust in what he did have what he did have. He had the privilege of walking with God. David had the privilege of walking with God. And also Paul. But think of the Bible that each one had and how much different their walk might be by knowing what we know as opposed to knowing what Noah might have known. He had the responsibility of obeying God. So did King David. So did Apostle Paul. Murderer is put to death at the time of Noah. Before that, it was not so true. Still true in the time of David. Still true in the time of the Apostle Paul. Animals were sacrificed to God. Abraham got off the ark, he sacrificed an animal right away to recognize the need of an intermediate in his gratefulness. King David had a temple set up that sacrificed hundreds, if not millions, of animals. Not a temple, but a uh, tabernacle, which became a temple. But the Apostle Paul, animal sacrifice was fulfilled in Christ's death. During the church age, he offered no sacrifice, but the sacrifice of praise. And the spiritual sacrifices the scriptures talk about. God did not tell him, oh, Noah, to keep the Sabbath, or circumcised male children. God told David to keep the Sabbath and to circumcise his male children. God did not tell Paul to keep the Sabbath or circumcise male children. Why all these differences? Because God is trying to reveal himself to us because God is trying to show us. We're going to see it come together next week or week after, probably next week, maybe the week after, how there's no way to God but through Christ. Okay? God did not tell him to baptize believers in water. God did not tell David to baptize believers in water, although there were a lot of immersions that Jews practiced. But God did tell Paul to baptize believers in water because it was being a picture of being baptized into the body of Christ by the Holy Spirit. And it was a picture of the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. All the things that developed since these other two in the, in the story here. Similarities and differences fit together in God's great plan of salvation. Now, next week, we're going to start looking at the covenants, one by one. 
we're going to actually, we're going to actually turn in our Bibles and read the covenant the way God gave it to Adam, to descendants, Seth and his on each one. We're going to read exactly what God told them. And we're going to look at those covenants and see how God was trying desperately to communicate to men who he was and how they could know him. As he, spoon by spoon, fed each one his word through the covenants and the lifestyles that followed. I'd like you to bow your head and close your eyes for a moment. Think about this. Think about Noah, David, even Paul. Can you imagine how thrilled they would have been to have had the whole Bible that you have? And yet, do you realize how much of it would be prophecy and not yet fulfilled substantially in history? Oh, what a privilege. What a privilege to have the Word of God. What is God convicting you about from his word? Something you need to believe and accept? Something in your life you need to reject and repent of? Something you're doing that you're doing well and God wants to encourage you to continue to do it? Identify something specific. Just in a moment, as we have a moment of silence, Try to identify something specific that God is trying to tell you through his word today. He has given you both the privilege and along with it the responsibility of mastering his word. I know it's sometimes difficult in a public setting like this, even quietness and your own heart and mind to think of these sorts of things. So I encourage you to carry home the challenge in your devotions and your personal life with Christ to ask yourself that question. Father in heaven, I thank you for your word. I thank you that by believing in it, men anywhere, anytime can know your Savior. I thank you that believing in it today is believing in Jesus Christ because he's come. He's been revealed in his death, burial, and resurrection. We put our trust in that today, Lord, for our eternal salvation and nothing else. And we look to him to be set apart to serve you. I challenge, Lord, that we would examine ourselves and that we would faithfully follow you in Jesus' name. Amen.